You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 87. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you so much for your time and attention today. If you'd like to support the podcast, the best thing that you can do is to share the podcast with others and get them to subscribe and to continue the conversation here, out there in the real world, in your daily lives, so that we can build up the resistance, we can build a new movement, build new communities, new cultures locally where we live at to improve our homes, to improve our churches, our communities, to improve our schools, to improve our city halls, but only by acting locally in a concrete, real way, are we ever going to change the world for the better and change the world for the better for our children and their children and their children's children. So that being said, then we'll continue again in this episode with the book Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents by Rod Dreher. And as I've said before, I hope that even if you are not a Christian, even if you are not a believer in God, that there is enough from these readings to inspire you and to get you going in maybe a different direction that you hadn't thought about before, or at the very least to get you thinking about your own presuppositions, why you think the way you do, what you believe, what you believe, and also then how you interface with the world around you. So page 214, beginning at the end as always, our cause appears lost, but we are still here. Now, Our mission is to build the underground resistance to the occupation, to keep alive the memory of who we were and who we are, and to stoke the fires of desire for the true God. Where there is memory and desire, there is hope. Let all saboteurs for the kingdom of God heed the stirring conclusion of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's 1974 essay, Live Not By Lies which gives this book its title. It was his valedictory to the Russian people. Quote, We need not be the first to set out on this path. Ours is but to join. The more of us set out together, the thicker our ranks, the easier and shorter will this path be for us all. If we become thousands, they will not cope. They will be unable to touch us. If we will grow to tens of thousands, we will not recognize our country. But if we shrink away, then let us cease complaining that someone does not let us draw breath. We do it to ourselves. Let us then cower and hunker down, while our comrades, the biologists, bring closer the day when our thoughts can be read and our genes altered. And if from this also we shrink away, then we are worthless hopeless. And it is of us that Pushkin asks with scorn, why should cattle have the gifts of freedom? Their heritage from generation to generation is the belled yoke and the lash. The more of us set out together, the thicker our ranks, the easier and shorter will this path be for us all. Because if we become thousands, they will not cope. They will be unable to touch us. I think about all the people walking off the job right now, not because they want to, 
not because they don't love what they do in their vocations, but because of the mandates or the threat of the mandates, the deadlines, the constant moving of the goalposts about what is necessary to fulfill the state's guidelines, whether or not we are to obey the mandates, to what extent do we obey the mandates? Who is it that's enforcing the mandates? And yet, if we don't stand up at school board meetings and demand accountability, if we don't stand in the halls of Congress and the Senate at the state and the federal level demanding that our representatives actually represent our will, then how can we expect any different outcome than what we're already experiencing? If parents don't step up and take responsibility for their child's education and life, then we are lost. We are doomed. I talk with parents all the time who complain that they don't know what to do about their children, specifically in relation to their phones and their online and social media activities, and how it negatively affects and impacts their psyche, that their children are in counseling and therapy, they're on prescription medications, plural, for depression, for anxiety. They live in a constant state of agitation and anticipation of something terrible that's going to happen. Our children are being terrorized by teachers and administration in their schools. They're being terrorized on social media and by corporate media. Every day for our children is framed as a doomsday event. And now we're ramping up, of course, to the climate crises, which, as a side note, I've lived through five climate crises in my life. And the one thing that I can say was the same about all five crises is that all five of them were bullshit. Just like this one's going to be more bullshit. These are the mechanisms of control and manipulation that are used against the population by psychopathic personalities who believe, religiously believe, that only they know what is best for the world. And so they will stop at nothing to see their ideologies made a reality. And anyone who stands in their way is a heretic, is an impediment to progress, is a villain, a demon, who must be gotten out of the way, marginalized, ostracized from society, demonized, vilified, arrested, erased, deleted, canceled. So ask more questions. And then listen to the feedback. Think critically. And if you don't know how to think critically, there are a lot of books available on Amazon that nefarious corporation. There are many, many books on critical thinking that teach you how to think critically. My children use them for their classes. Ask questions. Think critically. Listen actively. Be active. Don't wait for somebody else. You be the agent of change in your home, in your community, at church, in the schools, at City Hall. Get involved.
Plant a garden. Plant a community garden. Start a food distribution. Start a soup kitchen. Start a, a, a kind of like a goodwill for donations, for clothing and toys and everything. Do a toy drive at Christmas time. Give away Thanksgiving dinners at Thanksgiving time. Stop waiting for the state to give you money or put you into, plug you into some program that will do all the work for you. One of the things that's been heavy upon me lately, I mean, really weighing on me so that my shoulders are almost perma-shrugged some days, that the weight is almost palpable, it's almost manifest, is the degree of mediocrity that is constantly threatening to bombard and overwhelm me every day in my interactions with other people to the extent that I often ask myself or my wife, are my standards too high? Are our standards too high? Do we expect too much of others? Do we expect too much of ourselves? Because I know for myself, I expect too much of myself, that I am too driven, that I demand so much of myself because I want my children to have a better father than I did. I want my wife to have a better husband than the marriages that I saw modeled for me by my family members growing up. I want my children to be able to think for themselves and not get trapped in a system that benefits and profits off of their enslavement. I want to be the best coach I can be for my students. I want to be the best martial arts I can be, martial artist that I can be for myself. I want to be a faithful pastor to my people. And yet, every day, all I interface with, all that engages me, is mediocrity. And as a friend of mine commented on Monday night, it seems to have happened so quickly that everybody strives for, eh, it's good enough. Eh, I got the job done. What more do you want? Yeah, what are you going to do? Just rampant mediocrity in our society. Where are the great inventors? Where are the great creative minds who are going to create art and, and poetry and music? I was thinking on the way home on Monday night from the gym, we were listening to the Immortal Beloved soundtrack, which, one, phenomenal movie, Gary Oldman plays Beethoven, but two, obviously, phenomenal soundtrack, it's Beethoven. And I love it. I love driving home some nights just listening to Beethoven. And it hit me how I take for granted Beethoven. I love Beethoven. He's my favorite composer. But I've always known Beethoven. I remember hearing Beethoven in music class in third grade and second grade. Beethoven's always been a part of my life. And that familiarity not, not breeds contempt, but it breeds a kind of, yeah, it's Beethoven. It's what he does. It's like listening to Stevie Ray Vaughan play Voodoo Child. That's just what he does. But then you realize... That's amazing. 
what Beethoven composed, how he composed music, especially after he lost his hearing. Those sounds, those musical notes, that composition existed in his mind. He imagined Ode to Joy. He imagined that. And then he wrote it down and he scribbled it on paper and he played it on the piano and then an orchestra played it. But it started off as a thought in his mind. And there will never, ever be another Beethoven. There never could be another Beethoven because he is amazingly and wondrously made. And do we revere Beethoven? Sure, we give him lip service. And those who are into music may revere him. But where's today's Beethoven? Where's today's composer like Beethoven, like Bach? Where's today's Da Vinci? Where's today's Nikolai Tesla? Where are they? Is it even possible in our society today, which has subscribed to an ethic of mediocrity at all costs, which elevates mental illness to a virtue, which seeks the path of least resistance, a society that's over-medicated, under-educated, lazy, spiritually, mentally, and emotionally, uncreative, unintelligent, uninspired, ugly. A society that gladly participates in its own enslavement and execution. If we don't set out together, if we don't thicken our ranks, then the path that we travel on is not easier and shorter. It's longer and it's arduous. We need to become thousands. And then those thousands, they will reach tens of thousands. And then our country will be unrecognizable. But where do we start? Well, I think we start where God starts. I think we start where the foundation of every society starts. I think we start at ground zero for the state's attack on individual citizens. We start with the family. The family is the foundation of society. It's what makes individuals unique, intelligent, creative, wonderful people. The family. And without it, societies crumble. Civilizations disintegrate. Empires degrade and fall. So I'm going to go to page 130. Families are resistant cells. Subtitled The Family and the Totalitarian State. And we're going to learn about a particular family, the Bendas. So buckle up, let's get going. The underground Catholic Church was the main source of resistance here, a Slovak source told me. But over there, that is, in the Czech half of the former communist state, the Christian resistance was the Benda family. Again, the Christian resistance 
in the former communist state, the former Czech half of the communist state, was a family. One family, the Bendas. Now, that's not literally true. There were other Catholic and Protestant Czech dissidents, even within the Charter 77 movement, which the Bendas helped lead. But the Slovak's rhetorical exaggeration nevertheless says something about the esteem in which this one Prague family is held in the hearts and the minds of many who fought communism in their country. Václav Benda, the father of six children, believed that the family is the bedrock of civilization and must be nurtured and protected at all costs. He was acutely conscious of the threat communism posed to the family. And he thought deeply about the role the traditional family should take in building anti-communist Christian resistance. The family, the traditional family, mom, dad, sisters, brothers, is the bedrock of civilization. And it must be nurtured and protected at all costs. As I said about parents and the school system. If you disagree with the curriculum, if you disagree with the mandates and the guidelines, why do you keep sending your children back to school when you know they're being indoctrinated in an ideology which you fundamentally disagree with? Or they're being forced to participate in a lie? Masking up, social distancing, forced vaccinations. Why are you participating in that lie? Why are you derelict in your duty as a parent? The most important vocation that God could possibly lay upon anyone's shoulders. I think we don't consider deeply enough the spiritual ramifications of sending our children to school when we know they're going to be exploited and manipulated. They're being indoctrinated. We're literally engaged in child sacrifice at that point. We are participating in the lie, which means we are participating in evil, which is anti-God and anti-life and anti-Christ. We turn away from the truth because we don't want to take responsibility for what's true, which is this school and its curriculum, its administration and its teachers are actively working against parents, working against the family, in order to turn our children against us. And what do we do? Do we flood school board meetings? Do we work to replace those on the school board who advocate and affirm Marxist, communist indoctrination of our children? Do we lobby and go door to door getting support from our community to go to the school board meetings and demand accountability, a demand representation, demand that the school board represent the will of the parents. And the very fact that teachers' unions want parents that stand up and protest and speak out on behalf of their children at these school board meetings, they want them labeled as domestic terrorists or extremists, should tell you where we're at as a society, with the educational system in this country. As I've said before, 
Go read John Taylor Gatto, G-A-T-T-O, John Taylor Gatto. He will explain to you the history of compulsory education. He will break down for you the intent and the purpose of public education, which is really state-run, state-funded education. Remember what I read last week about Václav Havel and the Green Grocer and about the drive within every totalitarian, authoritarian society to label yourself a good citizen. Nothing about a totalitarian regime, nothing about authoritarianism is conducive to family. Not when the family functions on the foundation of faith, of belief that the family is the bedrock of civilization and that a good society, if the first premise, the first principle of that is, a good family, a good family upbringing. People who come out of good families make good citizens, which is ironic then when you look at politicians and how vile and horrible they are. What kind of family life do you think they had that they turned out this way? Benda, Vaslav Benda, was acutely conscious of the threat that communism posed to the family. So he thought deeply about the role of the traditional family and what role it should take in building anti-communist Christian resistance inside a communist society. So in the winter of 1987 to 1988, Benda wrote a short essay titled The Family and the Totalitarian State, in which he explained his core beliefs and what must be done to help the family endure in the face of a government and a social order bent on its destruction. How many Disney movies have a family without a father? And when there is a father... How many of those fathers in Disney movies are bumbling idiots who are barely above a child as far as their functionality within the family? How many TV shows over the decades have presented fathers and men as bumbling idiots, as fat, incompetent losers? That's programming. That's not an accident. We are being programmed to believe that men are not necessary. Fathers are not important. They're not relevant to the upbringing of a child. All you need is a mom. That's a lie. It's just a lie that's been disproven by thousands of years of human history and countless studies and research. And therefore, the communist state, as one of its first actions, will attack the government, I'm sorry, attack the family, and set the government up as the parent. So in order for the family, the traditional family, to endure in the face of a government and social order that is bent on its destruction, Vaslav Bendel says, we have to ruminate on this and be acutely conscious of the threat that the state poses to the family and that everything the state does 
will be bent toward disrupting and destroying the family. So now tell me that the government doesn't take an active hand in the entertainment industry when the entertainment industry and the government peddle the same message about families. But at a certain point, when you buy into the lie, when you're indoctrinated in the lie, it simply becomes the truth. You don't need a two-parent family. Traditional family isn't good. It's not useful. It's not vital to the upbringing of a child. The state has everything that the child needs to grow up in order to become a good citizen and a functioning adult within society. When we know that's a lie, we know that's a lie. Feminism was sponsored by the state in order to get women out of the house, in order to increase tax revenue by over 28%. Feminism was simply so that the state could get more money from us. Driving your kids out of the home at 18 years old, which flies in the face of thousands of years of accepted wisdom, came from the exact same state at the exact same time that feminism was being peddled by the state. Why? Because if you have 10 people, 10 kids in your family, and you kick them out at 18, that's 10 more sets of taxes, 10 more sets of student loans, 10 more house mortgages, 10 more jobs, which makes more revenue for the state. Feminism and pushing your children out of the home at 18. Underneath it all, peel back all the layers, go back to the 50s, and what do you discover? The state wanting more money and figuring out that the only way to generate more revenue is to break up the family and get everybody in the family working as soon as possible. It's all a grift. It's a scam. It's a Ponzi scheme. In the essay, The Family and the Totalitarian State, Benda said that we must throw away the regular cliches about liberation from the traditional obligations of marriage and family. In the Christian model, marriage and family offers three gifts that are urgently needed for believers struggling within a totalitarian order. Marriage and family offer three gifts, which he believes are urgently needed then for believers in particular who are struggling within a totalitarian order totalitarian order. So the regular cliches about liberation, we got to break free from the constraints of family, traditional family in particular. We got to strike out on our own. We got to be independent. We got to live the Horatio Alger story. Go West, young man, reinvent yourself, liberate yourself from the shackles of your parents' religion and your parents' home and your parents' values. Maybe, maybe if your parents are abusive, if you grew up around alcoholics and drug addicts, if you grew up in a broken home, then maybe, yeah, maybe you do need to strike out on your own. You need to find a different model for parenting, a different model for being married, a different model for building a home and a family. But just because you grew up in a house where you were abused or you were surrounded by drugs and alcohol doesn't mean that you had to perpetuate that cycle of addiction and abuse in your own life, you have a choice. You can break the cycle. And yes, it's hard work. Sometimes it takes decades to get everything worked out 
so that you can actually live a, a life of gratitude and satisfaction. But are you planting a tree for one harvest? Or are you planting trees that will bear fruit for five or six or 10 or 20 generations after you die? Is this about you? Or is it about those who come after you? The first fruit is the fruitful fellowship of love in which we are bound together with our neighbor without pardon by virtue, simply of our closeness. Not on the basis of merit, rights, entitlements, but by virtue of mutual need and its affectionate reciprocation. Incidentally, although completely unmotivated by notions of equality, and permanent conflict between the sexes. The foundation of the family is mutual need and affectionate reciprocation. I don't deserve my children's love. I don't deserve to have children. It's not my right. I'm not entitled to them. I'm not entitled to their love and respect and trust. Every single day, I have to work to tell them, to show them, to model for them our need for each other, our need for family, the importance, the vitality, the relevance of family. One of the things that globalism, which comes from humanism, has sought to dissolve is tribal identity, family clan identity. And yet the foundation of any society especially a stable, healthy society, are people that come from a very strong clan identity. They know where they come from. They know their traditions of their family. They know their family history. They know their family's culture. They know the recipes that their family likes to use at Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter. They know about the family reunion and crazy Uncle Mike. They know how their family came over here on the boat from Prussia or from Ireland. That's what gives them their core identity. It's what sets the trajectory of their life. It gives their life meaning because they know where they're coming from. And they know they're a part of something bigger than themselves. But it starts with the fruitful fellowship of love. You're not entitled to your children. You don't deserve their love and respect. You need to earn it. It's the one thing that, when I talk with parents, causes me to have to check myself before I am too honest, too truthful. Because growing up abused, growing up surrounded by other kids who were abused, growing up around addiction, growing up in a broken home, nothing angers me more than listening to parents speak as if they're entitled to their child's love, as if they deserve it just by virtue of the fact that they're their parents. I remember one incident, I was at the airport waiting for my flight and I was watching this mom and dad with their two or three kids and they had obviously had enough at that point. And as a parent of five, I get it. There's just times as a parent where you say to yourself, I need to remove myself from the room or there's going to be an incident. <laughs> but these parents were talking to their children in such an entitled way. 
They were insulting them. They were condescending toward their children. They were threatening toward their children. There was no attempt whatsoever to explain to their children the situation, to express their emotional state at that point in the airport, waiting for a flight that was already delayed significantly. These parents allowed all of this outside noise and their internal frustrations to pour out onto their children. And I thought to myself, here you have these children that look like they're between the ages of 8 and 12. And in the next decade, they're going to leave. They're going to leave your home. And maybe the reason they leave you and they leave your home is because of how you treat them and how you talk to them, as if you're entitled to their love, as if when you treat them like this, they're not going to grow up and then say, you know what? I'm done with this bullshit. I'm done with the condescending attitude. I'm done with the insults. I'm done with you thinking that you're entitled to treat me this way. So I'm going to leave and I'm not coming back. And then the parents will sit there and wonder after the fact, what did we ever do to drive you away? What did we ever do to you that would cause you to treat us this way? And as an outside observer, as someone who's lived through it firsthand, I can tell you exactly what you did. You acted as if you were entitled to them. You're not. When we were told during my wife's third trimester that our son would die in utero, my first child, that shattered every romantic ideal I had about childbirth. Because I believed up until that moment when the doctor told us this, and he showed us the ultrasounds, and we saw the hole in my baby's head. At that moment, my sense of entitlement was shattered irrevocably and unconditionally. In that moment, I was exposed. I had no control over what was happening inside my wife's body. My wife had no control over what was happening inside her body. Nobody had any control over my son and what was happening inside my wife's body. And the only diagnosis, the only prescription offered by the doctor and the specialist and the chromosomal therapist was abortion. Third trimester, full-term abortion. Because he'll never be normal, we were told. He'll be a vegetable his whole life, we were told. He'll never be able to learn like other kids, we were told. He'll die coming down the birth canal, we were told. And now he's going to be 19 in two months. He's a genius level IQ. He's amazing in every way. Like he's so much more than I deserve and, and became someone that I never expected. I couldn't have dreamed of the person that he's become. And so even when I'm at my worst, when he and I disagree about something, in the back of my mind is that, that fact, that he's here now, even though he was given a death sentence by the doctors. Even though I felt completely abandoned by God, even though I lost all of my childhood fantasies about being a parent, 
when we were told he was going to die before he was born. In spite of all of that, he's here by the grace of God. And therefore, every day, his presence in my life reminds me of how precious a gift he is and how I am not entitled to him. I'm not entitled to his love or his respect. Every day I have to show up for him. And I have to be the best version of myself that I can be for him every day. And when I slip, when I want to take a day off, when I'm being self-pitying about being a parent, he didn't ask to be born into our family. We didn't go shopping for him. God gave him to us and said, this is what you deserve. This is the son that I'm giving you. He's a gift. And so I need him in my life. I need my daughters and my other sons in my life. Because after my first son was born, of course, my daughter was born. And then she almost died or a respiratory virus two months after she was born. Ended up in an oxygen tent. And then we were told that my wife couldn't have children anymore. It would be impossible for her to carry a child full term. Weak cervix, they said. That was after our second child was born, and now we have five. And we just celebrated my baby girl's fourth birthday yesterday. What changed? Well, on our side of the house, nothing. But man plans and God laughs. So I have three sons and two daughters. I don't deserve any of them. They're all amazing. Every one of them just dumbfounds me how amazing they are. They're all gifts. And like I said, three of them aren't even supposed to be here, according to medical wisdom. <laughs> and yet here we are celebrating my daughter's fourth birthday, the girl that's not supposed to exist. And what's weird, tongue-in-cheek, is that they reciprocate our affection. They reciprocate our crazy. They're us, but not us. They're me, but not me. They're my flesh. They're my DNA. But they have their own unique personalities. They are their own individual people. And as much as it is within me, and I'm conscious of it, I do not try and enforce me on them so that they might be little versions of me. Because I know me, and I don't like me a lot of times. Like I said earlier, I set too high a standards for myself. I beat myself up too much. I'm too hard on myself. But I can't stop myself from doing it. I think a lot of it is the way I grew up. A lot of it is the way that I hurt myself with drugs and alcohol and the people that I hurt along the way. It's as I get older and chunks of memory break loose and come to the surface and I'm reminded of things that I did that are horrible, terrible things, selfish, destructive things. And I think to myself, how could God ever possibly love somebody like me? I think to myself, you deserve to be abandoned by God. You don't deserve his time or his attention. 
I beat myself up a lot about not being good enough as a husband or a father. I beat myself up all the time about not being good enough when compared to my teammates at the gym. And it drives me. It drives me forward. Urgently, intensely, aggressively, it drives me forward. But you can't always be engaged in battle. You can't always be fighting. You're just going to short out at a certain point. And I know that, but I can't stop myself. Because I see the need. I feel it. And I want that affection. I want it reciprocated. I want to be loved unconditionally by other people. Who doesn't? Who doesn't want to be surrounded by a family that's good, that's unconditionally loving, that treats each other as a gift and forgives each other when they don't. It doesn't have to do with any kind of notion about equality like Benda writes. It's not about any conflict between the sexes. It's not about gender roles. It's simply recognizing male or female, girl or boy, these children, our family, is an amazing and wondrous thing. It's all gift. And without it, I wouldn't even be half a human being. I'd be like one sixteenth of a fulfilled, satisfied human being. And that ultimately then, because we receive these children as gifts, we strive to give them the second gift, which is freedom. Freedom given to us so absolutely that even as finite and in the course of the conditions of the world, seemingly rooted beings, we are able to make permanent, eternal decisions. Every marriage promise that is kept, every fidelity in defiance of adversity is a radical defiance of our finitude, something that elevates us and with us all created corporeally higher than the angels. See, this is the thing, right? Whether you believe in God or not, whether you serve a higher cause or not, if you can't see yourself in relation to eternity, you start looking at your watch all the time. You check off another box on the calendar. You worry about your schedule to the point of obsession. Because you don't see the decisions you make having any effect into eternity. Because there's no cause bigger than yourself that you serve. There is no deity, no God, no benevolent, loving God whom you serve, who serves you, more importantly. You don't recognize that in your finitude, there is something that elevates us above the angels. And that is that we are made in the image of God. That we are not put here on earth to live for ourselves. We were made to live in relation to God and each other. We were made for community. We were made to congregate in families, in social groups, in tribes and clans. We were made to get together and sit down with instruments and make music 
to the glory of God. We were meant to sit down and exchange stories around a campfire with each other. We were made to embrace and hold each other passionately, lovingly, unconditionally. That's how we defy our finitude. Through our faith, yes, but also through our faithfulness to maintaining community, communion with each other. Recognizing that we were made for greater things than simply eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we'll die. God made us higher than the angels. That's amazing. That is an awesome responsibility in reality. And then it leads into, it feeds into the third gift, which is the dignity of the individual within the family fellowship. Each one of my children is made in the image of God. Each one of my children is redeemed by their Savior, Jesus. Each one of my children was given to us as a gift in order to make this thing called the Riley family. And that each of them then has worth, has value, not based on what what I assess, not based on what my wife assesses them, not based on the school system or people at church or people in the neighborhood. Definitely not the state and definitely not corporations. My children, myself, you have an inherent worth and value that was imbued in you by God when he made you. Think about it theologically. You don't deserve to be created. God chose to make you. And in spite of our selfishness, in spite of the damage and the harm that we do to each other because of our selfishness, God puts you in this world. He didn't have to do that. But he chose to create you. And he chose to create you as you. And yes, as a consequence of our parents and our grandparents, going back to the very first parents, decisions are made, choices are committed to, which resulted in birth defects, which resulted in growing up in broken homes, which resulted in us turning out in a way that, you know, we don't really like to, we don't like the way we look in the mirror. We don't like the way that life turned out. We don't like the relationships we're in. We don't like the job. We don't really like our family. Okay. But you're still here. And today is still a new day. And there's still time to change. There's still time to lean into that dignity which was imbued in you by your Creator when He chose to make you. And as much as we mess that up because of our innate selfishness, you're still here. You're listening to this, which means there's still time. There's still time to reassess your value, your worth as an individual human being. You are made in the image of the living God. You are made a little higher than the angels. You are priceless. You are a treasure. You are a gift. And if anybody treats you as if they're entitled to your love, as if they're entitled to your respect, as if they're entitled to your trust, they're not. 
They're undervaluing you. You're a gift. And you should accept nothing less from others and treat others in the exact same way. There are so many people, so many people who believe that their entire goal and purpose in life is to be mediocre because they're surrounded by mediocrity. They see mediocrity. They consume mediocrity. They engage with it on social media. They have been devalued by society and pop culture. They have been devalued by the state, dehumanized, separated from their God, separated from a real, good, healthy family. And therefore, they have no dignity or it's severely compromised. But the third gift, which comes from freedom, which comes from the realization that we were made by a creator a little higher than the angels, raised in love and forgiveness in our homes, that dignity that we have as individuals, because our parents didn't try and make us become them. And if they did, we can break that cycle by not imposing that same selfishness on our own children and recognizing, yes, I have to impose discipline on you because your frontal lobe isn't fully formed yet and you make dumb decisions like pouring maple syrup in all of the heating vents. That didn't happen to me, but it happened to somebody else that I know. 13 years later, every time the heat kicks on, it smells like waffles in his house, which I don't know. That's kind of a win as far as I'm concerned. But you treat each child as an individual worthy of respect and love and forgiveness because they are created in the image of God, created a little bit higher than angels. Their inherent worth is the very fact that they exist and they're alive and they've been given to you to take care of. And if you didn't have that growing up, if you didn't have that protection and that feeling of safety, if you didn't have that unconditional love reciprocated, now is the time to start a new family, to break the cycle and start anew, to push back against the state and pop culture, to push back against the school system, to push back against your communities, which have abdicated their responsibility as parents and given that away to others. Teach your children of their inherent dignity as individuals within the family fellowship. Because as he writes, in practically all other social roles, we are replaceable and can be relieved of them. There's no job where you are irreplaceable. There's no social setting where if you leave, someone will fill your spot. Whether rightly or wrongly, doesn't matter. In almost every social role, in every vocation, you're replaceable at any time. However, with such a cold calculation of justice, it does not reign between husband and wife, between children and parents, but instead the law of love reigns. My children are irreplaceable. My wife is irreplaceable because they're gifts given. I don't deserve them. I didn't earn them. I'm not entitled to them. They're gifts given. So even where love fails completely and with all that accompanies that failure, 
the appeal of shared responsibility for mutual salvation remains, preventing us from giving up on unworthy sons, cheating wives, and doddering fathers. Now, Benda was no utopian about the family. He acknowledged that families are all too human and filled with failure and weakness. In the past, though, the family could depend on the outside world to support its mission. And in turn, strong families produce citizens capable of building strong civil societies. Under communism, however, the family came under direct and sustained assault by the government, which saw its sovereignty as a threat to the state control of all individuals. There it is. The state sees the sovereignty of the family and the individuals within that family as a threat to their control of every person in the society. So Benda writes, a left-wing intellectual terror achieved what it wanted. Marriage and the family became extremely problematic institutions. What do we see in our schools? What do we see in our universities? What do we see in pop culture? A left-wing pseudo-intellectual terror that is now achieving what it's always wanted, going all the way back to the 1950s. Marriage and family become extremely problematic institutions and therefore must be attacked at all times, systematically destroyed, so that the state becomes parent, so that the integrity and the dignity of the individual is utterly assumed by the state. The state and the culture will assess your personal value and your worth. Your teachers and the administration will tell you your value. Traditional families then, Christian and otherwise, living in the post-communist liberal capitalism of today, know all too well that the left-wing assault on traditional marriage and family commenced in the West with the sexual revolution in the 1960s. It continues today in the form of direct attacks by the woke left, including law professors advocating legal structures that dismantle the traditional family as an oppressive institution. More ominously, it comes from policies, laws, and court decisions that diminish or sever parental rights in cases involving transgender minors. But it doesn't only come from the left. With the advance of consumerism and individualism, we have built a social ecosystem in which the function of the family has been reduced to producing autonomous consumers with no sense of connection or obligation to anything greater than fulfilling their own desires. No sense of connection or obligation to anything greater than the fulfillment of their own desires. That is our society in a nutshell. That is our cultural ethic. That is our morality. That is how we interface with reality. How are you going to fulfill my desires today? Conservative parents, then, are often quick to spot threats to their family's values from progressive ideologies, ideologues. But they can be uncritically accepting of the free market's logic and values. To say nothing of mindlessly surrendering their children's minds to smartphones and the internet. That's why Voslav Benda's advice to families living under attack from totalitarian communism remains piercingly relevant to families today. The modern family will not hold together 
if the father and mother consider divorce an easy solution to marriages' difficulties. Nor, said Benda, can a family endure if the children make a mockery of the idea of marriage. When a family's members accept a culture of, quote, sexual extravagance, promiscuity, relationships easily entered into and broken off, and disrespect for life, that is abortion, then they cannot expect the family to be what it is supposed to be and to do what it must do. Benda said that the family house must be a real home. That is a place which is livable and set apart, sheltered from the outer world, a place which is a starting out point for adventures and experiences with the assurance of a safe return. In other words, a haven in a heartless world. The family does not exist for itself alone, but first for God, and then for the sake of the broader community, a family of families. When the nation, that nation in particular, and its people are held captive by a totalitarian order, then Christians and their families must push as hard against the totalitarian world as it pushes against them. That's what the Benda patriarch taught, and that's how he and his family lived. Benda survived to see the fall of communism in 1989 and his friend and close collaborator, Václav Havel, became the first president of a free Czechoslovakia and presided over the peaceful separation of the Czech and Slovak nations. Benda stayed active in Czech politics until his death in 1999. His widow, Camilla, still lives in the book-lined Prague apartment where, under communism, she and her husband hosted seminars for dissidents. Push back against the totalitarian world as hard as it pushes against you. Make your home a haven in a heartless world. Shelter your children and your family from the outside world. Make your home a starting out point for adventures and experiences with the promise that there is always safe harbor here. There will always be safe return that you will always have a father and mother who love you unconditionally, who will forgive your many sins as they ask you to forgive theirs. We do not exist for ourselves alone, but first we exist for God and then for the sake of the broader community, which is a family of families. And when the state comes in and tries to take that away from us, we must push back and counterattack, just as violently and aggressively and intensely as we are attacked. Because as goes the family, so goes the church. As goes the family, so goes the country, the nation. As goes the family, so goes the individual. It's powerful stuff. This is not something to be taken lightly. This is about the future. It's about the future of our families, the future of each of us as individuals. It's about the future of our nation. So we can either sit passively doing nothing and accept the belled yoke and the lash, as Pushkin talks about, 
or we can make our homes into citadels, into fortresses, and we can recommit ourselves to forming clans and tribes and providing for our, our children fruit that will produce a harvest for generations to come so that even long after we are dead, our children's children's children remember our names and what we did for them. So today, do something exceptional. If you don't have children, go do something for other people's children, for other family members' children, for family members, for kids at church, for kids in your community. Plant those seeds. Encourage families. Encourage parents to not act as if they're entitled to their children's love and respect and trust. Encourage them to fight for the souls of their children. Fight for the family. Fight for the soul of the nation. And then, as Solzhenitsyn writes, we will become so great, our numbers will become so great that they will not be able to cope and we will not be able to recognize our country. That's all I got today. That's all I got. I could go on for two or three more hours, but I'm sure this is all you've got too. Thank you for indulging me. Thank you for listening. I hope this helps. Go check the book out if you like it. Go read it for yourself. Start a book club. Read the book. Dialogue about it. Put what's written in this book into practice in your own lives, in your homes, in your communities, at church, school boards, city councils, wherever you're at. Stand up and act. Do it for the sake of the person to the left and the right of you. Do it for the sake of our children. Do it for the sake of our country. All right, Space Monkeys, talk to you again soon. Peace.